0: Partial funding of Fruit Bowl is provided by listeners like you, who donate through the Patreon crowdfunding website. Thanks to Tom, who became our latest patron. Find out more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast.
1: There was just like a moment where I just was like, stop fighting. Like, you're gay. Like, accept it. You like guys. Like, let yourself go. And from then on, it was like, masturbation was... Amazing. Masculine tops, power bottoms, butch girls,
2: fem boys, bears, otters, unicorns. There is no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences.
0: But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles?
2: Fruit Bowl explores the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex. The embarrassing moments we'd like to forget. And the reliable
0: bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way.
2: Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out.
0: Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity, and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. Today's episode features my interview with Adam, a queer sex advocate, filmmaker, and nightlife promoter living in New York City. Stick around after his interview for a conversation I share with my friend Pete about what to expect when you go to a sex club. Growing up among the many shopping malls in Paramus, New Jersey, Adam was a sensitive kid who had obsessive-compulsive disorder and was bullied so much that he had to change schools. Once he came out, Adam's parents were supportive, and he soon discovered that his younger brother was also gay, and was Adam's polar opposite when it came to the quote, gay lifestyle. A therapist helped him accept his sexuality, and also gave him some valuable advice for negotiating bottoming with overly aggressive tops. Even though he's not sure if he's interested in a traditional romantic relationship anymore, Adam has developed close friendships and meaningful connections with a variety of queer people over the years which has led him to become something of a New York sex nightlife innovator by organizing queer, all-inclusive
1: sex parties. Uh, Hi, my name is Adam. I'm uh, 38, and I graduated high school in 1999. I would say, in terms of my sexual identity, I definitely identify as gay. I think I also identify as queer. I'm slowly sort of expanding my horizons and looking at a lot of different types of people that I never had in my head that I would be playing with, um, which I am now, which is cool. But I think that I also identify myself as queer as well as gay because of a lot of my political beliefs and a lot of my um, sort of ways of thinking about um, community and, and care of each other. Uh, which seem to be sort of principles of of queerness. Um, But sexually, I would say, primarily gay. I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey. I, um, it's a suburb of New York. Uh, For people who don't know, it's about 15, Uh, minutes, 20 minutes across the George Washington Bridge. Paramus is known as the sort of commerce center of Northern New Jersey. For most of my childhood, New Yorkers would flock to my town because they had at the height of it, seven malls uh, in one town. And so when people talk about like Jersey and the malls and um, they're usually talking about Paramus. I really like Paramus Park. Uh, which was a simpler mall than the Garden State Plaza but the Garden State Plaza was overwhelming and also I was always terrified that I was going to run into bullies uh, which was a kind of recurrent theme of my childhood just being really scared of bullies Paramus is a suburb of New York so on a lot of levels there's a lo- there's a, a liberal current there's like a lot of there's a lot of democrats who who live there um, but it definitely was conservative in, in, in certain ways. And I, I think what was interesting about Paramus is that it's a much more diverse place than a lot of places that are small-town suburbs, even in northern New Jersey. Um, you know, there were a lot of Indian people and a lot of Asian people and not very many Jewish people, which I was. And, you know, I was usually one of two Jewish kids in my class. It was more that there was sort of undercurrents of racism and white privilege and christianity and that kind of all swirled together to be sort of conservative the makeup of my family was uh pretty traditional uh my mom and my dad uh lived together they are together still i was the only child until seven my brother came along at seven years old. My brother is gay also, and he has had a steady boyfriend since college with barely like six month breaks in between them and and they, and the relationships last for years, you know. Um, and some of them are not so good. and now he's in a really good relationship with somebody that uh, we really like. And he's been with him for a number of years, and they live together in a very, perfectly arranged uh, apartment in Long Island City and they're both professionals and he is actually it's really funny it's like I'm a radical slut and My brother is a serial monogamist. Were my parents accepting that I would like have a sexuality? I think yes. Did I think that that my parents would be accepting of me being gay? No, but I didn't think that because I saw some evidence that they didn't like gay people or they never said anything and my, my parents are very liberal and I think they, you know, my father is a student of literature and, and, you know, not completely, you know, head in the sand about issues of sexuality. He has friends who are, sec- who are homosexual. And, um, you know, my mother went to Wellesley. I'm sure she knew people who were lesbian. Um, I, not that I ever heard or knew or anything about that. Um, but I just kind of got the sense that, like, I didn't know what would happen. I mean, in a way, they, like, when I told my mother she was accepting, in a way, she didn't throw me out of the house. She supported me. She said, Ugh. but, you know, privately, I'd sort of hear, you know, that, that, um, She was sad that uh, I wasn't going to have kids. And they would both be sort of encouraging me, maybe you could have a kid. Maybe, you know, you sure you wouldn't want to? And I think that sort of ties in with, you know, what a lot of Jews feel about both the Jewish bloodline, which we hear from Jewish leaders is constantly getting eroded. And also just that their family line would be ended. And that given the history of how much they struggled to survive during the Holocaust, um, there was a kind of a sense of sadness, you know, and there was a lot to place on my feet because I, I can't be responsible for my desire to not have a kid, you know, and, and like, hello, where, where am I gonna put the kid in this room? Okay, I make like no money, you know, I'm an artist. What, you want me to have a kid to support now? Like, why do you wanna ruin my life? And there was also a sense that I couldn't really be open with them about sex or sexuality. They knew I was gay, but, like, nobody ever asked me um, who I was having sex with, who I was sleeping with. I felt like my mother, when I came out, she became a little bit standoffish with me or, like, just didn't want to hear about certain things, you know? And, like, I remember once, like, I showed her a picture of myself in the back of um, a Next magazine. I was like, look, they took my picture, you know? It was, like, a party photo. And But all the other photos were, like, of the black party or something. And she was like, mm, put that away, you know? I had an early incident when I was, like... 12 or 11 and I went into a convenience store that we visited a lot to get soda for my mom and and when I was there I was like oh I'm gonna get a magazine or something and I went to the magazine uh, sort of stand and I was looking and I saw this magazine called Adam uh, which is my name and I was like and it was gay porno and this magazine had been placed like in the kids section so I was like and I was like so gobsmacked by all this stuff, you know the guy and the owner like caught me like Hey, what are you doing? Look stop looking at and I was like, "Oh, okay, and I like pain He was like you are not 18 and I was like, okay, I'm sorry ah. And I went out in the car and I felt so guilty Like I I think also when I was 11 12, I'd been sort of somewhat indoctrinated or hopeful that there was a god and that he was gonna like make shit work out for me because like it hadn't so far. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I have to obey God's laws. I was, you know, and I, I felt like I had done something wrong and I had this pit of guilt in the, my stomach. It was so intense and painful. And I just thought, this is what guilt feels like. And by the end of the th- the, the car ride, I was sort of like, I'd been praying and I'd been, I like confessed to my mother. And I said I did this thing, and and, and I looked at this magazine, and, and and one thing I haven't told you is the magazine was like guys, and she was like, she didn't say anything bad, really. She she didn't ground me. She wasn't angry. She just said, you know, that I probably shouldn't do that again, and um, she wasn't gonna ground me, but you know, she, thank you for for being honest, and um, and then um, when I got out of the car, I. And I realized that the all the pit of stuff in my stomach was not guilt, but was like just terrible gas and I felt so stupid for telling her and for like processing it that way But I think I kind of just had to and then we sort of forgot about it until like I was 16 I did another like sort of mini coming out after because I was having dreams that were gay and sexual in nature and I remember telling my father you know, I had this dream, and I'm really worried it means I'm gay. He's like, well, dreams are dreams, and dreams don't mean exactly what you think they mean, and so, you know, I don't think you have to worry about anything. I think really what was going on was both my parents, probably from an early age, suspected that I might be gay um, because I was artistic, because I was maybe or I think that they just both were like, kind of like, this is probably what it's going to be, and they were worldly enough to be like, well, when he comes out, Okay, we can deal with it. There were still things that I, like, sort of fought back against them, like I said, with my mother not wanting to hear about that, which sort of still goes on today. Uh, they don't, you know, we don't talk about any, my sex parties that I throw. We don't talk about anything that I do, you know, or my identity as, like, a queer, kinky, you know, slutty hedonist. But it does feel like that there's a part of me that I just can't access with them. And I've made, over the last like 20 years, I've really tried hard to make inroads. I just like spending time with them. I don't, it doesn't need to be a dinner, you know, we can just go see a movie or do something. And my father has done a lot to sort of correct a a lot of the sort of disinvolvement he had with me during my teenage years when i was really kind of a fucked up asshole and he's he calls me every week or so he asks me about my sex life you know he wants to, he doesn't really need to know the details but he wants to make sure that like if you're getting laid that's good i've been pretty open with him lately about it just being like no i sleep with a lot of people and um i have a number of different you know friends with benefits and um i deeply love these people and we have great sex which is nice so i just said to him like i don't i'm not really seeing long-term coupling as something that i'm going to be particularly successful at and he's okay with that you know he's like okay well Okay, a couple more years, he might. They might want to come to my sex parties. He want wanna. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I knew about sex from a, a much earlier age than some people. I watched movies with my parents that would sometimes get a little risque, like um, like a Mel Brooks movie. For, for instance, or, um, you know, uh, uh, like PG, kind of John Candy comedies, you know, back when PG wasn't quite just for kids, you know. And also I have read a lot of Stephen King books when I was like, you know, 10, 11. And so I was kind of figuring it out. I can remember being in elementary school and hearing my friend Eric tell me that He had been at a birthday party with these two or three other boys. And one of the boys had like pulled down his pants and and sunned them, which was the opposite of mooning for people who can't figure out what that is. Uh, (laughs) The other side, the sun and the moon. And he had sunned them. And I just remember being so excited. And like, I wanted him to tell me the story again. Like I really was like, oh my God. Oh my God, you mean I could, somebody could do that to me and I could see a penis? I mean, I wasn't attracted to, you know, I wasn't, I didn't even have a sexuality at that point, but like, I could just, I was just remember being like, Oh my God, I want that to happen to me. That's like a, you know, um, but in terms of queer sex, I probably learned about it from movies. By the time I was 12, I was renting all sorts of movies from the, the library or video store and, um, Eventually I started to watch gay movies and I don't think my parents even realized. I had no access to porno um, except for the Spice channel which I could flip the cable box really quickly and see like a second of of like unscrambled porno. Straight porn, yeah, but sometimes you could see dicks which was also freaked me out because at that point I was really trying not to be gay and I, I was started to have these I I have OCD. So I started to have OCD kind of thoughts of like, you're gay, 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 you're gay. And they would just come in to my head when I didn't want them to come in. You know, I'd be taking a test and I'd start or I'd see somebody and I'd start to you know and, and I didn't really know like that, you know, what was going on. And I just was trying desperately to put these thoughts out of my head and then I would start to watch straight porno and I borrowed straight porno magazines from my friends or bought them from my friends and I would jerk off to them and I'd try really hard to be like into tits and pussy and stuff and it just didn't, it didn't really fly, you know? I, I would only really get off the most if there was like a guy in the in the shot. When I went to the city, when I went to New York, uh, I was maybe like 14, 15, I, was able to go to bodegas and buy like hustler magazine and i you know i still wasn't like ready to be like seen buying a gay magazine because i was just so convinced like it was something would spiral i would get caught the cops would get caught something so I but i could buy like a straight porno magazine and in hustler magazine the back of the magazine would have a lot of ads like phone ads for phone sex or for you know early kind of mail order services, personals, and things like that. And you would sometimes, you would always be like one or two sort of shots of like, you know, gay guys hooking up. And it would be the gay line, you know. And I would like jerk off to that. So that was kind of my first uh, experience with that. In my summer of like when I was 13, I was inside almost the entire summer because I'd had such a terrible experience in my eighth grade year being bullied in part for perceived gayness, but also just because I was a target. And um, I, I made my mother send me to a private school for high school. I was like, I'm not going to public high school with these people again. I'm not spending four more years being, you know, harassed and bullied and hiding in the bathroom when there was a substitute teacher and stuff like that, you know. So I was inside and I was, I just remember it was like a summer of like fighting it, fighting it, fighting it, you know, watching stuff and watching movies and hoping that something didn't like kind of come through the TV that was going to trigger me in some way. And I think this just was like, there was just like a moment when I just was like, stop fighting, like you're gay, like accept it, you like guys, like let yourself go. And I ch- it was really like intense and I just I had to kind of had this release. And from then on, it was like, you know, masturbation was amazing. And I would watch Saved by the Bell and jerked off to that. Every show where there was a hot guy, it was such a pleasure to just be like, you know, oh my God, I like all of this. I like this all. And it's, it's like a war, you know? It's like the two sides fight each other. I mean, you can't control your sexuality. I mean, you can control your behavior, but you can't control what you're turned on by. You can open your mind and be more expansive and realize that, the narrow things that maybe you first liked at, at first, that there's more to sexuality than that. And there's more to, you know, people than body parts. But initially it's, it's, it's primal attraction. That's, that's there. And you can't, you can't really fight it. Uh, you know, I talked earlier about the fact that I developed OCD when I was sort of in puberty and it started initially with, you know, you're, you're not gay, you're not gay, you're not gay, these intrusive thoughts coming into my head. But I also had this tied belief with rituals. And I I went into school one day and I got bullied. It was like the start of this horrible, intense, eighth grade bullying period. And I tried to think about the day before and what had I done. Perhaps I had done something that you know, triggered it. And all I could determine was that I um had masturbated multiple times that day so i sort of set this new rule for myself you can only masturbate once a day and if you do more than that you're you're gonna anger god and i remember like you know sometimes i wouldn't be able to resist and something bad would happen the next day but something bad would happen because of coincidence and not because of anything i'd obviously done to anger god these are OCD rituals, they don't make sense, and you have to touch a doorknob, or you have to do this, or I had to have all my clothes in my room before I went to bed, um, because otherwise I couldn't wear them the next day, and, um, you know, there was, there was all these sort of things, and the OCD kind of was connected to my sexuality, and so when I came out, it also came with a, like a, a sort of realizing that all the OCD rituals that I did were bullshit and that I didn't have to follow them and nothing was gonna, bad was gonna happen to me if I masturbated 16 times in one day. Maybe something would be my penis, but nothing was gonna happen to my physical soul or something. I'm still on my journey of learning how to have sex at 38. It's an ongoing process, you know, and things change and shift all the time. But I think that it took me really maybe 10 years of experimenting with people and playing with people to understand what I needed to have a fulfilling sexual experience and a satisfying sexual experience, even more than fulfilling, just, you know, and there's a lot of different ways that can look like, but it really only came about through a lot of trial and error and experimenting with people and learning and observing how people behaved in sexual scenarios and how the tendency was really for kind of a cold sort of, you know, uncaring kind of behavior and that that, that wasn't something I wanted. And although I wanted it sometimes. And uh, so yeah, so it was more, more personal experimentation the first time I did anything with another person, I was 18. My friends were all supportive of me, and um, they were like, well, let's take Adam out. So we went to this party called Curfew, with a K, uh, which was at the Tunnel Club, uh, which is a now shuttered but legendary nightclub. And this was their, like, gay twink party. And it was so awful, and the crowd was so cunty, I was like, this is not for me. This is not where I, I need to be, you know? And they were like, well, let's go to the cock. <laughs> and the cock is this notorious uh, gay bar in New York, which somehow thrived during the crackdowns of the Giuliani era, probably because of the crackdowns of the Giuliani era, and the cock had, was the, one of the first bars to return to kind of having a back room, um, would do super sexual performances, and so we took a cab and we went over to the Cock from from Chelsea to the East Avenue A, and I had a terrible fake ID that they took, no questions asked, and I went in, and I we were with so we were with my friend Rachel and my other her friend Sarah and this guy Sam we went in and they the, the door person gave us um, something called Foxy dollars and we realized that this t- the night was foxy and the way it worked was that performers would go amateur performers would go up on stage during the show and they would strip or do dirty things like pulling things out of their butts or or whatever. And the crowd would just cheer and, and also give them foxy dollars, was fake dollars. And whoever had the most foxy dollars at the end of the night would win a $100 prize and like a bar tab or something like that. And on stage was Jackie Beat, um, who was much bigger then. She looked a lot more like Divine uh, during that point. And she um, was singing uh, her parody of uh, Walk Like an Egyptian, which was Choke on My Erection. And I was like, what? This is so cool. And then after that came Dean Johnson, who a lot of people know was this legendary bald drag queen, queer performer, a true visionary. Uh, And he was singing songs about fucking the boy who worked at the deli and other things. His band, The Velvet Mafia, was playing. Uh, so I was just like over the moon excited. And then my friend Sarah got up and she did like, you know, um, a to I Love Rock and Roll by Jen Jett and we gave her Foxy dollars. And then I was like, well, I see the back room. I see it's there. You know, I see there's people going in and out. I'm like, I'm going to go in. So I went in and, and the big thing had been like, hold your wallet, make sure you, because people will pick your pockets in this back room. So I, I. I went in the back room and I walked in. I think I maybe took like three or four steps before somebody grabbed my crotch. And that was the first time that anybody else had ever grabbed my crotch or done anything. And I like was just instantly, instant boner. And very quickly he started, he unzipped my fly. He started taking it, my dick out. And I didn't know what, I don't, I don't even know if I registered what he looked like. It was sort of semi-dark. But it wasn't dark enough that I couldn't totally see. And what I remember very clearly is he's jerking me off. I was getting really turned on. And then that guy, this guy Sam, who had come with us, who was gay, he came in after me and he was like, I think he wanted to make sure that like I wasn't gonna get eaten alive in the back room, you know, and because they both knew that I was like really green. And I I um, remember he came over to me and he like took my cock, he pushed the other guy's hand away, he took my cock, he jerked me off, I think I came in 20 seconds, and, and we made out. And it was my first kiss and first jerk off in the same moment, in the coolest place in New York, the place I absolutely wanted to be. And I felt like I was, it was like so thrilling. Uh, and it was the, one of the great, great moments uh, of my you know sexual history. And uh, I was just so overjoyed by that moment. I think I sort of had that first like crush of heartbreak where I was like, "Maybe Sam's my boyfriend now." And Sam was just kind of like, "No, like, I'm not going to be boyfriends with an 18 year old just out of the closet, you know, who just had his first masturbation session. Like, you know, I, I think Sam was doing me more of a kindness than maybe being totally attracted to me, um, you know and um and that was nice it did make me feel protected and it made me really taught me an early lesson that there was you know a way that you could be kind to people in sexual situations and care for them and and that's really informed what i do now with the sex parties that i throw where i really encourage people to be kind to each other to treat them uh, to treat each other without judgment to open your minds to celebrate each other's differences, Um, you know, that I very much feel that I can hook up with almost any type of person. It just has to be that the chemistry works and that person has to kind of trigger something in me where I go, okay, I can find something about this to get really into. You know, and so sometimes a lot of people are like, oh, I'm so big. I'm like, great, like, that's super hot. Or, you know, they're, 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 they're different in some way. And I I've found myself able to kind of adapt to a lot of different people, which I think is, for most of the 2000s, was not the way that most gays behaved. Now that I wanted to hook up with other people and could hook up with other people and had access to the Internet and gay.com and like early kind of chat rooms where you could, you know, message people and say, oh, yeah, I'd like to do this or I'd like to do that. I very quickly was like, okay, well, now I want to learn how to give a blowjob. And so I found this guy who was older at a giant cock. I thought that was the best thing. I have to have a giant cock, you know, and I. I went over to his house and it was an older guy. He wasn't unattractive, but he wasn't really we didn't he didn't really sort of turn me on too much. His cock was very hot, but he essentially face fucked me and it was really painful and I didn't like it and he didn't seem to register that I wasn't liking it. And I just remember being like oh, and I left just feeling like totally deflated and defeated and um like I just sort of made a wrong move you know like I really fucked myself and I think one of the things that I found out when I went into therapy that later that summer because I was it brought up a lot of anxiety and depression when I started to realize like how the world was suddenly like treating me differently but also how I was sort of like okay I'm a new person and I don't know what the fuck I'm doing and I have OCD that hasn't been treated and I need to deal with it all at the same swirling moment and started to just be super outraged by all the injustice and so I went into therapy and and I think what happened was like I would start going to Um, like glory holes and cruising places because that offered me a way to reduce somebody to just a body part through a hole or just something there was a barrier between me and another person and I think it was sort of rooted in that second experience where the guy didn't have any kindness or care for me you know now we would we'd say things like enthusiastic consent meaning if you can tell somebody's not into it or you check in with somebody and they're not saying, yes, yes, keep going, you know, people give up their their agency when they feel there's no other choice. And I did that a lot. And so when I went to cruising spaces, it was many times successful and able to sort of put me at, you know, OK, there's just a giant cock coming out of this hole and that was easier to deal with than the idea of like date going on a date with somebody, seeing the casual cruelty of somebody trying to date somebody, and then having them suddenly dump me and and all these things I hated. I hated the messy, interpersonal sort of things that went along. So I kind of built a world for myself where I was just doing those kind of, cruising or sorted things what my therapist and I realized was that me pushing myself to go to places when and and do things that I really wasn't totally comfortable in doing was in effect triggering probably a lot of my OCD and making a lot of my OCD thoughts and behaviors more intense and that when I was able to just sort of start to take the, my own agency and say, no, this is, this is not what I want to do. I don't like this. I don't like feeling pain. You know, um, I don't like sort of an older person taking advantage of me. You know, when I was able to start doing that, that kind of helped me understand what I did like for the first time. And that I like these sordid places, but the sorted places had to have a modicum of behavior so that you could correct people who are behaving badly. And uh, um, if you didn't have that, you just shouldn't go. I remember my therapist told me very early on when I had uh, a very painful experience. Um, early experience having anal sex. It was again, the same sort of scenario as the guy who kind of face fucked me and didn't seem to take any a notice that I was deeply um, un, unhappy, uncomfortable, not enjoying it. This guy was fucking me and he didn't, I was in so much pain. Every every entry was more and more pain. And it went on for, I don't know how long, an hour. And I remember going to my therapist and just telling him about this thing. Like, he was like, okay, so here's what you need to know the bottom is in control, you are the receptive partner, that means you control what the top does, this fantasy of the top is just going to do whatever they want to you, unless that's your fantasy, and that turns you on, that's not what you need to do, and I was like, yeah, it's not, you know, I mean, unless I want to give myself to somebody like that, because I tap into somebody's energy, I won't do that, you know, so, um, so that was really important, that was really important for me, Generally, I shifted over to being a top and it took me a long time to find somebody who would let me fuck them, which was weird to think about. But I just didn't fuck anybody topping them until I was 24, 25 and uh, and I'd come out at 18. So it was uh, quite a, you know. A a sort of a distance and I didn't last very long usually when I topped and so I was kind of like well I don't know if I'm great at this either And I was like really kind of like oh, maybe I'm bad at sex maybe blowjobs And so when I would have hookups, it would just basically be blowjobs and and jerking off, you know and making out and um, Maybe I'd eat ass, but I don't know cut to I think I'm like maybe I'm 33 I'm 32 You know, this was only like five or six years ago. And I'd had a lot of slutty cruising experiences and fun, sexy times and all sorts of things. I I started to feel better in general about my sex and sexuality and and my ability to have it and my desirability. And I was taking Ambien to sleep, which I did for about 10 years. I had this boy that I had met in um, San Francisco and he was actually... Lived in Berlin, but he was from Mexico and he was so gorgeous, named Enrique. And he came to New York and he was here while I, you know, when I was back here, we both, both sort of came back at the same time from San Francisco, or he was visiting New York from San Francisco, something like that, and um, but before going back to Berlin. And he was like, he messaged me, he was like, you, know, uh, you want to come over? I was like, yeah. I was like, but I just took my Ambien to go to sleep, but it was okay because I also sometimes like just taking the Ambien and staying up and getting like kind of high from that. And then eventually like sort of making myself fall asleep. And, um, so he came over and, you know, we were hooking up and he was just like, I'm going to fuck you now. And I was like, sort of thought about it. And I was like, okay. I was like, but you should just know that I've only done it, where it's felt painful, I've never experienced pleasure, and I can't promise that I'm clean. And if I say stop, we have to stop. And he was like, "Okay, that's fine." So we got of got in a position. I got on my back, like right, right here, and I, um, you know, I kind of put my legs up, and and I was just, you know, breathing deeply. And he pushed his way in, and. He started to fuck me, and I was really relaxed because of the ambient. I was, I mean, it was high. So it made it all more pleasurable. And suddenly I was just like, oh, this is what it feels like. Like, I want to do this all the fucking time, you know? So when I became more of a bottom and I started experimenting, and I, you know, found more friends in the sort of queer Brooklyn community, and uh, Scruff and the apps were a huge... for me I was just having guys come over from various apps and and um, we would hook up and and eventually I met this kind of group of friends and and I started throwing parties in this room Um, when my roommate would go out of town I would have you know five six guys over and we would hook up and play and fuck and and prep was a big part of that too because I was suddenly on prep and I didn't have that fear all the time of condoms and 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 HIV and all this stuff um, so that kind of all swirled together in a perfect storm and I used to go to these sex parties at this club where I do my parties now and the parties themselves were very restricted to a certain age. After 30 you were like basically not the target range of the party. I been shunned also at bear events where I was, I was like super hairy. I thought, Oh, this is perfect. I'll fit in with the bears who say they are all about body positivity and acceptance. But because I wasn't super big, I was not desirable to people. So I felt all these kind of ways that I was like, not in everybody's sweet spot. And I would start throwing sex parties with the people that I liked having sex with. And we would just gather. And sometimes we'd have really good chemistry and sometimes we wouldn't, but we would have all these parties I went to this club where I had been to this previous party. I said to the owner, I said, you know, I throw a lot of sex parties at my house, I, maybe I could throw one here. And he was like, oh yeah, I'd love to have you throw a sex party. And I started to throw this sex party and we called it NYC Inferno, um, named after a famous gay porno movie, which ends with an amazing uh, scene shot at the the old mine shaft, and it's a very queer, very raucous group sex scene. And I think we kind of created that party to be like that part, that party in the movie, not by any sort of super design, but just by stressing um, that it was open to everyone, that we weren't trans exclusionary, even though we had a lot of work to do to become more inclusive and uh, more diverse, which I think we've gradually done over the course of the parties. Um, we do. Uh, creative themes every month we had a party called fucky e. cheese which was our um our spoof on fuck chuck e cheese and showbiz pizza themed restaurants we had you know a fisting ventriloquist act and a ball crawl where people were you know having sex in people are usually wearing underwear or jock straps or naked or some kind of other outfit maybe they have their shorts on maybe they have their whole all their clothes on we don't make people mandatorily check their clothes because for a lot of uh, people, especially people who are trans or queer, gender non-conforming, takes them a little bit longer to feel comfortable enough to really shed their skin. You know, as our party goes on, people generally those people generally start to, you know, lose those clothes and, and get into the spirit of the party. That's generally the structure of the party. People go off and they play with whoever they want to play with. Some people stay two hours, some people stay till four a.m. And you just see kind of all manner of Uh, acts people do fisting people do you know uh, you'll see you know cis women and and trans folks hooking up trans women trans men a lot of a lot more trans men than you'll find at any other I think uh, gay party Uh, that's that's sort of sexually um, focused and um, so yeah there's nooks and crannies there's slings there's glory holes there's you know all sorts there's a piss tub um, there's all sorts of things for people to, to get in, get into. People really feel that um, I've created a very special thing. That I've carved out a, a, a real place for people to be themselves and be free and be and meet each other. I know a lot of people who feel like they've met their best friends at my party. That they've formed community. It's really exactly what I wanted it to be. The thing I hate in New York nightlife, especially like sex nightlife, is that it's like once you get a once you get a, a like a way of being, it's always the same. And so you go in and you hear the same music or you see the same people, and it's like okay, I want it to be that every party is different in some way the theme is different it may attract a different crowd it's it's different every every time and so i think that i'm definitely have taken what i've learned about bad behaviors and good behaviors and the things i like and i've constructed a party that enables people to behave that way. I think one of my guiding principles was the idea that Samuel Delaney talks about in his book, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, which is a history of the Times Square porn theaters and his own experiences going to these theaters. And he talks about the Times Square porn theaters as a democratizing place that broke down barriers where a Wall Street businessman might be jerking off with a a janitor from the Harlem and that that would foster... You know, all sorts of intersectionality and um, cross-class kind of relationships that would form. This party is sort of like my masterpiece. I think of it as like an art project in a lot of ways. And I, I sort of try to take approach it with the care that an artist would their work, you know, um, that I'm creating something. You know, it's it's somewhat transactional. I don't go out much anymore to meet people at bars because I have my party, and what could be better than that, you know? I had a partner who came over, a really sexy guy who would come over and we'd have great sex, really sort of rough and animalistic. And I remember like he would always, his skin would always be kind of like salty because he took, he spent a lot of time like at the beach and in the water. And so I remember he came once and he, he was kind of like, you know, I was like kind of kissing him and we, and we were, we were in the dark. We were like, I don't know why, but it was just like, let's keep it dark, you know? So we were like hooking up and hooking up and i was tasting his salty skin and it was so good and it was great and then i started to taste like something else and it was kind of like we were and we were we were throwing each other i mean he was tossing me here he was tossing me we were we were slamming together you know and and you know passionate kissing really deep and i started to taste something else and i was like um what's going on i didn't know i was like okay but i was like it's fine it's just the skin it's just this salty sort of skin taste that's kind of tingling in my tongue and um i was like this is really hot but i want to see you i want to turn on the light he was like okay so i turned on the light and he like got this look of like horror on his face and he was like oh my god he was like i think dude i think you're bleeding and I like was like, no, I don't think I'm bleeding. And then he was like, oh, I'm bleeding. And I was like, uh, uh, is there blood all over me? He was like, uh-huh. <laughs> and I went to the mirror in the bathroom, and I was like, My face was, like, covered in, like, blood, like, all from, like, all over here. Like, it was just, like, I'd been in a horror movie or something. I was, like, blood had just been all over me. Because we'd been doing all this, like, really intense sex, you know. And, obviously, he'd had some nosebleed. It was, like, super um, intense and embarrassing because I suddenly had to shift into this, because it was pre-prep, I suddenly had to shift into this, like, freak out over blood and HIV and stuff, are you sure you've been tested? Are you sure you've, you know, you've, you, you I am I was real freaked out by it. And he was like, no, it's okay, was okay, it's okay. And I was also freaked out because I was like, you know, he probably feels terrible. And I was like, let's, so we found a way after I cleaned up to like hook up again. It took a while to get back into the rhythm, but not like that intense or anything, obviously. But we, we got each other off, you know. And, um, so that was an embarrassing experience, but it did not derail the night, it just momentarily screwed it up. (laughs) So when I go to rim somebody, someone sits on my face or somebody has their ass up and they're on all fours. Uh, and I'm like, maybe like kneeling on the bed and I can or like on the floor and I can just kind of really get up in there. I kind of find a way to like start to hum through my mouth. It's a, I guess it's sort of like borrowed from American Pie where they talk about, you know, you're supposed to like do the alphabet while you're licking pussy, you know, licking pussy or whatever and or sing or something like that. I don't know. And and there was also, I think, in the in the um, in Short Bus, in John Cameron Mitchell's Short Bus, there's a scene where they're like he's like singing the national anthem through while rimming someone you know so i'll be like rimming someone and i'm like mm. it's like having a vibrator and it, people go nuts like people just they want me to do it forever like i and i love it you know and i i i'm very that's a that's like a signature uh, a signature adam move um, is is the vibrating rim job, and I encourage everyone to try it. The other thing, it's not my signature or whatever, but I think that people are really missing out if they don't get their neck um, like licked and chewed on and eaten be- and right up to the ear because I love this section. I think there's a lot of um, erogenous I mean you just the pleasure centers you just you just suddenly you're just like you just go nuts and if I get somebody who loves doing that I could do that time for like an hour um the other thing that's a really um really sensual I mean I'm not normally like a super sensual person but if I get the right person I'll turn on my back or they'll turn on their back and what I would say is that I like to be I like when somebody bites me on my back a lot like all over my back it doesn't have to be not hard i don't want anyone to break skin or anything but just kind of like just you're chewing a little bit like mm, get it in your teeth it triggers stuff it's sort of like it's almost like acupuncture in a weird way it's your body starts to go oh something's trying to get at you know i'm trying I, and this sends endorphins and you start to get this like rush and then one of the big spots is under the arm if you ever get somebody to bite or or nibble or gnaw on your arm and I can take it pretty hard which I like when it gets under the arm it's it's like it's like an incredible sort of good pain kind of an an S&M thing you know where it's like they're doing they're biting they're biting they're biting they're biting you're just like oh and it doesn't feel like necessarily like fully like boner inducing pleasure but it's you're just like oh it's like a massage you know in a way And then afterwards they just blow on it. It's just, it's amazing. It's like one of my favorite moves. I'm either, yeah, I'm laying down flat and I like, I would say to a guy like, can you bite me like all over my back and then under my arm? And I'll just direct him. I'll be like, okay, now do here. And he'll see how much pleasure it is. I'll be like, you want me to try it on you? And he's like, okay. And they're like, okay, yeah, I get it. It's really amazing. And it's not something everybody like does, you know? There are other signature moves. I mean, I'm big into water sports That's a whole other journey that we didn't talk about. And, you know, I can guzzle a lot of piss um, from someone. And a lot of times when someone will say, like, oh, I have to go piss, I can be like, you can just piss down my throat. And if they're game and they're not totally turned off by that or turned off by the idea of kissing me afterwards, uh, which some people are and I understand that, um, I can take a lot of that. I have a lot of diverse tastes, and the party has expanded them even more, you know, Mm -hmm. I I hadn't really had sex with many trans people, um, uh, trans guys, more specifically, until I did my party, but, you know, I've found that I enjoy it, and, you know, it needs a different approach for me to kind of, to kind of get in the headspace, but I've had great times with trans guys, and, 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 um, I, you know, can get into heavy impact play. I can get into new things. You know, people want to try new stuff. I'm like, okay, you know, the things I don't really like to do are, I don't think I can do fisting because although I like to, to work up to it, I don't think I can take a full fist because I have Crohn's disease and it's just a not, it's just not a safe thing for me to do. I don't want to do sounding so basically things that should go in small big things that go in smaller holes besides penises I don't like Yeah, the sex is easy for me to talk about love is very difficult I don't know if I can ever really say that I've been in love or have fallen in love I definitely had a boyfriend who I felt I loved and said I love you too But we broke up and I know what, what I feel for my friends is love and that I have friends that I would say I'm like totally in love with them, but I don't think what I see in movies and TV and my friends relationships, this real process of, you know the struggle of a relationship, figuring it out, finding that this person really completes you. I met my soulmate, these kind of things that people post on Instagram when they post their wedding pics. Uh, 15 years ago, I met my soulmate at a movie theater and he was coming out of the thing. And I said, oh, hello. And I've, I don't think I've ever felt like that, you know? I don't think I've ever been just totally like the the, the, the skies part and the, you know, the clouds part and the, all this stuff. Um, you know, so so it's it's a tricky question. I, I'm still waiting, but I also think that part of the issue sometimes is that, you know, I've set myself up in a life now because I have a lot of sex. I, it's a kind of hedonistic lifestyle. I get a lot more pleasure out of, like, having sex with my friends and my friends with benefits and my fuck buddies, however they want to identify, or just, you know, people I meet at my parties or um, or at other people's parties. I have a lot more pleasure than I do in romantic settings or in relationship settings. And I tend to feel what I think people feel like is love after one of these encounters or after, you know, one of these things or in the throes of sex. And that that could be just endorphins and things swirling around and me just going like, you know, oh, love, this must be it. But, um, I genuinely like think that that I get more pleasure and more like relation, like more more joy out of those things than I do anything where I'm like, I have to find love because it will complete my life. Everyone has love. There's someone for everyone, um, and I just keep sort of putting it off and saying like, you know, if it happens, it's just gonna happen. Like I, you know, I tried for years to say, it'll happen when I'm not looking for it. And then eventually, I really did just stop looking for it because I was like, even when I was saying if it, it'll happen when I don't look for it, I was still like setting that up with the hope that I would look for it. That's how OCD works. And um, I was I was like really trying to figure out who I, how I could be. You know, I think that I do not look for love. I don't necessarily think that I would be a good person in a relationship. The relationships I've had have not gone particularly well. Um, largely due to my own indecision. I mean, when I get in something, I suddenly want some, to be out of it. And when I'm out of it, I suddenly want to be into it, you know? And so, yeah, love is this thing that I, like, I read about in novels and I see in movies, and I understand passionate love and, and all these things, but it's not something I have a lot of experience with everyone's divorces everyone has miserable marriages we all have stories about you know various you know problems in our parents relationships and I mean half my friends do anyway and then you see like you know what couples go through or what friends go through when they're in relationships that are really tortured and you're just kind of like I don't think so I think I'm okay just like living the embodiment of the life that I wanted when I was a kid, which is I live in a cool part of New York, I do cool underground things, I hang out with cool people that I like, you know, that are that are interesting and different and that aren't the same people that everyone hangs out with, you know. And and bringing together this community that I have for the sex parties that I throw, the inferno parties, has been extremely enlightening. That's really another turning point, is starting to throw these parties. And, and I feel love for the people who come to my parties. I love the party itself. It, it's, it's like I'm living an art practice and a life practice at the same time. I didn't need to force myself to do things Ahead of my pace and that I should wait for Something that seems more right and put a little more care into Finding what those right things are and determining what I really like myself I think that I would also tell myself what my therapist told me earlier that the bottom is in control Uh, And just also that I am in control that I have agency that just because I am young which I was when I was sort of starting to experiment, just because I was 18 and desirable doesn't mean that I have to submit to the whims of these primarily older guys that I was experimenting with um, because young guys weren't very interested in me. So, you know, that was a kind of a thing where I just kind of had to realize, like, I'm hot. I don't look hot to most people, maybe, but I feel hot and I, have a lot of sex with people, and I think I probably would tell people, you know, or I would probably tell my 18-year-old self, like, it's gonna be real good, like, just don't, you don't need to push so hard, you know? You don't need to, you don't need to master everything, like, right out the gate. I mean, it's this thing of the second adolescence with gay people, where we're, we're, we're suddenly going through it all again. I think my adolescence is, like, I think I'm doing my 20s now, And so maybe in the next decade I'll actually become like a full-fledged adult who's able to like hang a picture on my wall or something like whatever, adults or something, buy a duvet cover, you know, (laughs) not live in something that like looks like a squat to most people, you know, I don't know. Um, 11 years, there's still no pictures on that side of the wall, you know? Uh, Yeah, yeah, there's time. Yeah, there's a lot of time. (laughs) planet's going to be here forever. There's nothing we need to hurry up about, you know? Uh, And I'll live forever, obviously. Adam's interview
0: was conducted in October of 2019 in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I met Adam years ago when we both had films in LA's LGBT film festival, OutFest. His latest job is a producer on a documentary feature about a famous gay porn store in LA titled Circus of Books, which will start streaming on Netflix in March of 2020. You can find out more about his life's other masterwork by following NYC Inferno Party on Instagram. Up next, my friend Pete and I have a conversation about what to expect when you go to a bathhouse or a sex club. If you listen to season one, you know that after each interview, I had a co hosting session with a friend and we just discussed different topics that were brought up in the interview. I've since moved these conversations to Patreon, where they're an exclusive benefit. So if you're interested in hearing those longer conversations, you can become a patron. Find out more at fruitbowlpodcast.com or you can visit Patreon at patreon slash podcast.
2: You've been to a bathhouse, mm-hmm. I'm assuming. Yes. Do you remember the very first time you many. went to one? Um,
0: yeah, when where was that? Um, it was probably in Los Angeles. Uh huh. Because um, w- when when I went to undergrad in Dallas, there were no bathhouses, and then in New York, there weren't any because of the AIDS crisis. They had closed at that They'd time. They closed. So it wasn't until LA, I think, probably Flex,
2: um, on Melrose. That probably was my first bathhouse. Yeah, I think I remember mine. I was probably twenty four. Four, maybe mm-hmm. 25 um and it was in rochester new york whoa of all places <laughs> um and it um strangely is there's this gay bathhouse that is right above the police station there so you oh know you God. have to go past the police door to get this other little door and climb a set of stairs and then get to this you know strange bathhouse wow um above and Above the, the police, police station. Stage. Yeah, I guess they coexist pretty well there. I don't know how that works. Uh. Um, but I went by myself for the first time. I think a lot of people, you know, go with a buddy or something. To, but I was like, screw it. I want to see what this is all about. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, that was eye opening. I mean, <laughs> it was quite an experience to have to figure out what what goes on there. What mm-hmm. is what is the system? And yeah. Um,
0: if you could just describe what the system is um, for people who may not have ever gone to a bathhouse. Gotcha. Because like, I I do think that there's a the uh, similarity between any bathhouse anywhere.
2: Right. I mean, it's that moment you get there, you take your clothes off, you put on the towel. Well, first you check in. You check in and you have to have some awkward, you know, exchange with some person behind the door who doesn't, you know, really care about you.
0: Well, also you have to give over your identification. Yep. They and give sign you, your name. Mm-hmm, they give you a towel and a key. Um, I would recommend bringing sandals. Not a bad idea. Some kind of uh, shower type. Uh, footwear. Right. So you don't have to like walk around with your bare feet
2: on all right. of the gross floor cuz you don't want to know what all has been on that floor. <laughs> right. And these are open 24/7, so they're not getting the deep clean anytime, yeah. you know, on a regular basis. I want to give a shout out to all of the people who work
0: in bathhouses.
2: Oh, yes. Oh my
0: god, those are our heroes cuz <laughs> <laughs> they see everything. Doing the Lord's work. They they have to go in and replace Uh, linens Mm. after people's uh, fun times. Mm -hmm. They have to check in drunk people and people who are probably high on a lot of Mm -hmm. substances and they have to have a lot of patience with people who lose things and such. So I always feel like the people who work in bathhouses are most likely like
2: just a special breed of person. Well, I wonder like, what their connection to sex is. Because if you're surrounded mm-hmm. by this reeking you know, yeah. s- sex situation all the time, I imagine it would sort of be a turnoff. I think maybe it, there might be some
0: fatigue that settles yeah. in. Well, you know, it is a very specific kind of sex that I think that happens at bathhouses. Oh, for sure. Um, so I bet that they make space for, for other kinds of sex. Um, I, I'm certain that they probably don't. Actually, have sex in their work workplace.
2: <laughs> right. I'm
0: just guessing here. If right. anyone's working at a bathhouse, uh, let let us know. Have you? Do you have sex at your workplace? Okay, so yeah, you you come in, you have your sandals. They give you a towel. They take your ID. They, there's usually some some uh, lube and and condoms there for free.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you find your way to your numbered locker. Yes. And you put you put all your stuff in there. Or a room. Well, you can get a room. It costs more. Yes.
0: I highly recommend getting a room to a first timer, especially mm-hmm. because then you have a refuge. That's true. You have a place where you can escape if things become too overwhelming yeah. or if, if somebody is pursuing you who you don't like. Right. You can lock yourself away. <laughs> and I'm, I'm that's an extreme uh, description. I That's never happened to me. I feel like. You you are pursued at points, I think, in bathhouses, but but there's ways around and there's ways of telling people you're not interested.
2: Right. I generally find that bathhouses are sex positive in the sense that, you know, if someone approaches you and you're not into it, you can just basically indicate, I'm not into it. Yeah. And they're like, okay, they'll turn their attention to somebody else. Yeah. Right? Nobody's really going to pressure you too hard. Because um, there are
0: other people there.
2: There's plenty of other people there. So. Obviously,
0: there's going to be some body insecurity um, based on who you see there and who how you're comparing yourself with them. But I also feel like at most bathhouses, I see a lot of diversity. I agree. When it comes to um, yeah, the different kinds of people who who go there, I do just want to mention a little bit more about the specifics of of uh, sex club uh, behavior because I. I'm imagining a lot of people out there might be curious about it. So like, yeah, you either get a locker or a room, usually in the room, there will be a locker in the room so that you can lock away your personal belongings, Mm -hmm. like a cell phone or whatever. Nobody carries around cell phones in the sex club. I think that's probably prohibitive. And also it would be kind of a pain. Um, Lots of sex clubs. Well, there's two kinds. There's ones that have saunas and and hot tubs and Mm -hmm. and wet areas, um, in which case you would walk around probably with a towel around your waist or not, Mm -hmm. or slung over your shoulder. Um, And, you know, however much you want to use any of those services, it kind of depends on what your comfort level is when it comes to like public spaces and, and shared uh, swimming type Mm -hmm. pools. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then there's also sex clubs that don't have, uh, those
2: kinds of areas. No, it's more like a maze. It's a yeah. series of hallways and, and you know, with lots of doors leading onto private rooms or hallways leading into sort of public sex spaces or, yeah. you know, glory holes and little cub- cubicles and things like that. But there's we, almost always a, a, a way in which you can
0: circulate. You can do a loop. Walk around a loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and come back to the same area Or go into... There's never, like, a dead end where you
2: get trapped, I think. Well, sometimes, but that dead end is, like, dungeon corner. Right, right. It might be a larger shared space. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: But, yeah, I think that there are... Often play areas that are more public for yeah. people who are exhibitionists yep. or who want to just like hang out and get fucked by as many guys as they want. Mm-hmm. Um, like the Steamworks here, there's a sling in a in a larger public right. space where I've seen guys just literally camp hang out, out. <laughs> <laughs> hang out. That's yeah. the more appropriate term. <laughs> um, there's more little nooks and crannies some places where you can have a little bit more privacy, but still not be in a private room.
2: Do you go to any? Uh, It's been a long time since I've been to a bathhouse. Um, No reason. I've always enjoyed myself at them. I just have other, you know, connections with people that um, serve that same need, and I don't have to bother. Yeah.
0: You don't have to pay that
2: entry fee. I don't have to pay that entry fee. Sometimes they
0: can be expensive.
2: Absolutely expensive. I mean, it's like 30 bucks a pop after a certain Mm -hmm. point. Um, Sometimes 40 if you get a room. Right. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, you never know what you're going to come away with from that said bathhouse. Mm -hmm. You don't know who these people are and who they've been with. And I've certainly gotten, shall we say, burned in the Mm -hmm. past. I like to tell first timers
0: that when you go into a bathhouse, you have to go in knowing that there is a good chance that you will come out without having had sex. Like, that is a potential scenario. Okay. Okay. And I like to just tell people that so that they don't go in with this really high expectation. And then they end up getting disappointed by some less than spectacular hookup scenario. Where they've just done it because they felt obligated to do it. Because they've spent all this money, you know?
2: And to me it's all about the timing. It, it honestly is. is. It, it's the time of day you go, the the day you go, who else happens to be there at that time. Yeah. I mean, if you especially if you have a pretty specific type that you're attracted to, yes. you may not find that person there. And that's that's good that you've mentioned um time
0: of day because I would also recommend for first first timers to not go after the bars close. Like, oh, it's
2: messy and drunken. It's and messy, horrible.
0: and you you're likely to run into people who who are inebriated and who might not respect your boundaries. I would really recommend like a first timer to go around like happy hour time, like really that early. Yeah, because okay. sometimes early evenings, especially on like a Friday, you'll get like the after work crowd before they go home. Mm-hmm. This was true in Madrid when I lived there for a short amount of time. The the most hopping times were around happy hour times. That makes sense. Yeah. I think Sunday afternoons mm-hmm. might be a
2: good time. Yes.
0: Yes. During the day, there's a little less of an desperation, a little more, yeah, relaxation, you know. Lots of lots of people might even just go to a bathhouse to relax and
2: Mm-hmm. potentially meet, just
0: talk to people and meet, meet them meet them
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah um of course having sex is one of the priorities but i think it's it's a great way to like kind of shed the technology apparatus that we are constantly sort of yes uh living our lives through and and have a renewed sense of cruising yeah in the old school sense yeah that's fun
2: yeah, meaning. I wonder, I wonder how, the, how the health of the bath health in- industry is these days. Yeah. Um, because I feel like a lot of it has been replaced by dating apps and so forth. Yeah. I just wonder how much activity they see these days. Mm-hmm. We see, I hear of them closing all the time, all over the place. Yeah. So it's got to be a struggle. Well,
0: I've I've been to the one in Seattle recently, and it's it had a robust... Uh, attendance? Attendance. Seemed to be pretty hopping way to go you seattle degenerates (laughs) i think seattle has a kinky reputation so people might come from out of town expecting a certain experience and and going to steamworks is uh is a good way to get that yeah well thank you for for helping me out with a sex club primer
2: (laughs) sex club 101
0: Fruit Bowl has had a busy week. I was in Los Angeles last week where I attended a screening for porn yesterday and also conducted seven Fruit Bowl interviews, bringing our grand total to 65 on our way to 100 interviews total, which brings me to my latest request for my listeners. As you know, I've been trying to cover more ground lately, traveling to New York, San Francisco and Los Angeles to gather more interviews from a more diverse group of interviewees. Lately, I've been dreaming of a few other trips, mostly to places where I know people so I can crash on couches and save money. But I realized the other day that I have very few contacts in the southern part of the country. And I just know that there are some amazing people in the South who have a unique perspective on the queer coming-of-age story and how it differs there compared with other parts of the country. So I've decided to ask you for help. If you're listening and you live in the South, or you used to live in the South, or you know people who live there, I would love for you to just reach out to me and put me in touch with people that you think would be interested in being interviewed. The city that I think would provide me the most bang for the buck is Atlanta. And I'm just choosing Atlanta because it's a large metropolitan area in the heart of the South. And I know that there's likely a queer community there that is made up of people who have grown up nearby, but maybe have escaped to a more urban center in order to kind of, you know, live a more open life. And they might be interested in reflecting on their 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 journey. So yeah, I'm just putting that out there in an Oprah like way just sort of visioning a trip to atlanta to record interviews so if you know anyone in the south and specifically in atlanta who you think might be interested in talking to me and recording an interview please just let me know i'd just like at this time to give a shout out and a thank you to other podcasts that have helped us promote fruit bowl thank you to glenn and drew at gayest episode ever also, my friend Dennis Hensley's podcast, Dennis Anyone, Matt Baums' Sewers of Paris, and my friends Dave and Alonzo and their Linoleum Knife podcast empire. Check them out. Fruit Bowl is a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.